Uh, you can open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today in just a minute. Uh, but I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple minutes actually to find that because I'm going to share, I wanted to share before uh, we read this text and before I seek to, to preach it for us, I wanted to share a few announcements of sorts on behalf of the pastors. If you're part of our church family, you know we don't usually spend much time giving announcements and updates and things like that. Uh, when we gather together, it is to worship, it's to pray, to sing, to read, to, to preach, to hear the word uh, brought to us. Um, but there, there's a few things we wanted to share today about our life together as a church that, that are important things that are adjustments we're going to be making as a church family in the next few weeks. Um, most of you, if you're a regular part of our church, you probably received an email on Friday about some of these things, so it might be redundant if you've already read that, but I know some of you have not, or some of you are guests with us, so I wanted you to know some of these things as well if you have not heard of them yet. Uh, but a year ago, even as you heard in How I Prayed, a year ago, ago, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, was spent not here, right? We, we were in our homes or maybe other places. Uh, we were uh, watching things through screens. Uh, we were not together in person. And what a year it's been uh, from then to now, right? There was uh, some highs, but some definite lows as we faced uh, this thing called COVID. Together, as we continue to, really, uh, we lost even a beloved brother in our church family in this last year uh, to that sickness. Uh, it has been a weighty year, and we've tried our best to walk wisely in this, and we will continue to. Uh, but it has been quite a year, and I want to just pause and at least express my own thankfulness to God for how he's carried us, how he has brought us through these things, and our thankfulness uh, as your pastors for how you have walked through this together with us and us with you as a church family. And so we've sought over the last year to progressively make changes, to take steps wisely and carefully uh, as we know how. We've sought to be wise, we've sought to be patient, we've sought to be submissive to government, we've, we've sought uh, to honor the Lord, uh, we've sought to love each other and all these things. Uh, but what we've, we've, come, we've come to a point the last few weeks where we feel like it's, as we've taken some steps in progressing towards normalcy, where we feel like we, are going, we need to take a few larger steps, a few more longer steps towards normalcy, I wanted to share what a couple of those are and why briefly before we get into the word. Some of the reasons we're going to be taking these steps the next few weeks uh, that are encouraging things to us as we uh, take a, a view of, of the landscape is that there's a really low rate right now of cases, of hospitalizations, and of death related to COVID, both locally and then even in our state. Uh, so there's been much lower rates. Uh, there is widespread access, especially increasingly in recent weeks, to effective vaccines uh, for COVID for people 16 and up. Uh, and most recently, what, what has prompted some of this in the most recent past is that our, even our governor, who we've sought to honor and submit to, uh, even as of this Tuesday, two days from now, is lifting statewide mandates related to masks and distancing, uh, capacity limits, things like that. And so we've been very encouraged by those things. We have felt more freedom to take steps in light of those things. And so what we're planning to do is, is starting next week related to masks uh, is that masks are going to now be optional. Uh, we've had those be an expectation as we've come in for several months now, um, but starting next Sunday, they're going to become effectively optional for us and would encourage you to, to walk in wisdom as you feel led of whether to wear those or not. So masks will be optional starting next Sunday, April 11th. 
And then uh, pertaining to our worship gatherings, we're going to continue for a few more weeks to have two worship services. So today we're obviously doing that. Next Sunday we'll do that. The 11th, the 18th we'll do that as well. Continue to have 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock. But we've been planning for a while on April 25th, the last Sunday this month, to have that be the Sunday where we actually start to gather together as one church family for worship again. And we're going to stick to that. We're going to start on April the 25th, start having one worship service that's going to be at 1015. Uh, we had been considering for a while, and we even shared this, of doing those outside again in light of some of the dynamics that were played even a few months ago. But in light of some of the progress that's been made and freedom that's been allowed to us, we're actually planning on the Sunday in this room. Uh, as a, an aside to that, we're going to continue to live stream for a little while longer because we know coming together in that capacity and in that nature, some people might be a little slow to enter back into that type of environment. So we're going to continue to live stream for a little while longer, at least uh, for the weeks beyond that. Uh, April 25th is going to be a great Sunday. You'll hear more about it. We're going to start educational classes again at 9 o'clock for kids up through adults. Uh, and it's also going to be a sending Sunday, a commissioning Sunday for a church in our family, or a family in our church that we're going to be sending out to a particular nation with the gospel. And so we're going to pray for them. We're going to uh, hear the word of God uh, about the call to reach the nations and our role in it. So that very much looking forward to April 25th as a, as a turning point of sorts in the functional life of our church. I want to give a couple encouragements and then I promise we'll get into the word because it's way more important than what I'm saying now. Uh, but a couple encouragements as we take some of these longer steps forward towards normalcy. One would be that we as your pastors would very much encourage you to be respectful of the decisions and the approaches of other people, of other brothers and sisters in our church. Uh, we do not all think the same about this, okay? Uh, we, but we, we can unite around our belief in Christ, our belief in the gospel, and we want you to respect the decisions of other people. If you don't wear a mask and other people do, do not assume the worst about them. If you do and other people people don't. Do not assume the worst about them. Let's be charitable to each other as we take steps uh, towards some normalcy and, and assume the best of each other. Second encouragement would be, especially in this time in the world, uh, to use discretion if you have symptoms of illness. Uh, to not just be quick to be in here and use all the freedoms that are allowed to you if you are sick. Uh, there's still a real sickness that really can uh, make people very ill and even take their life. And so if you have symptoms of illness, we'd encourage you to stay home uh, and to use that live stream capability. And the third encouragement would be a very simple one, is just to remain flexible. Uh, we hope that these steps are some of the last ones that we take. Uh, that is our hope. That's our prayer. Uh, but we do not make all the plans, right? We don't know what God has in store for us. And so if things get really intense again, if we have uh, things that we need to, to scale back a bit, we are not anti-doing that. And so we'll seek to walk in wisdom as pastors and uh, as a church family collectively. So be flexible even as we take some of those steps forward. One last thing. Those are some encouragements. One ask that I want to make of you as we step back towards some sense of normalcy and as we start having classes again and having one worship service again. This may seem uh, indirect to this, but it's not. One ask that I'm making of you is that if you do not currently serve in caring for the young people of our church, 
the kids of our church uh, and being in their classes, serving in nurseries, things like that. I want to ask of you, if you're a part of our church, to volunteer to be part of that life of our church, uh, that dimension of our church life, of reaching the generations with Christ. We're starting up new classes at nine for kids that we haven't done in a long time, so some of our volunteers who normally serve during the worship service time are, are gladly going into that territory to serve, but that leaves an opportunity and a need for some of us who've not been doing that right? If I was not preaching sermons, I would be in there. Uh, I would be serving with the kids. I love reaching children with the gospel, whether it's just holding them, showing them the security of the love of God before they even know what that is, or whether it's giving them the, the seeds of the basic stories of scripture, whether it's teaching a lesson or just being there, not just for crowd control, but to love on the boys and the girls in those classes. It is a wonderful opportunity for us to collectively invest in the kids of our church and to take the gospel that's given to us by the people older than us and to pass it down to them. And so at the back of the auditorium there's a couple of tables with a simple little green form on it that's just asking for your name and phone number and I'm especially asking you if you have not currently been serving in the life of our children's ministries to fill that out and all that you're doing in saying that is that you would be willing to serve at least twice this summer uh, on Sunday mornings as we step into some of these classes and opportunities again all signing that would be is saying I'm willing to help twice at least twice. We're not going to ask way more than that. Maybe we'd ask you three times. Uh, but this summer, and so I would love if in those blue baskets at the back of the auditorium this morning, there was a bunch of green slips uh, that had your name, your phone number on it, and we would call you and get you coordinated and serving in that way. So I'm excited about these things. If you have questions about these things, any of the pastors would be glad to talk to you uh, this morning or later this week or even in the weeks ahead. But thank you for bearing with me on that. Now we are to much more important territory, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. We've been going through this passage of scripture, this letter of the Bible for several weeks now. And rather than stepping out of it and just reading a narrative about the resurrection of Jesus... We thought that this portion of this letter really fits very well in speaking to what happened that Sunday morning, the glory of it, what took place, and its relevance even for us. And we're going to see that it talks about a veil, talks about a curtain of sorts. We saw that last Sunday, even the Sunday before, but he's going to mention it again. And as I was reading this text this week, I inevitably was having to think about curtains and veils, things like that, and I was reminded how little I care about curtains uh, how little I even noticed them. Uh, anecdotally, uh, my family has lived in our house. I was talking to my kids on the way over here this morning. Our, we have lived in our house about five and a half years, and about five years into it was finally when I just paid attention to what curtains we had in our house. Uh, we had just had the same ones that had been up uh, when we bought the house that came with the house. And my wife and I, uh, a few months ago, just started to realize, like, the main reason was because one of them got a hole in them, uh, first of all. But we just realized, we hate these things. Like, why, why do we have these up here? Like, why do we still have them here? Yeah, they're keeping light up, but we really do not like these things. And so uh, we looked into some other alternatives and ended up getting some other things to cover the windows and keep the light out. But they'd been doing their job. They'd been keeping light out. Uh, but we just had never paused to even pay attention to them or even hardly even recognize that they're there, or whether we wanted them there or not. And we're going to see that the curtain that's referenced in this text today it is one that has been there even, it came with the house, so to speak. A, a curtain that keeps light from coming into our hearts. 
A, a curtain that is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. One that is covering the window, our windows of our heart, keeping certain light from coming into it. And I, I want you to know, even those in this room or people who are listening online, I am almost certain that even in this room or those who are listening, there's many of us who still have that curtain there. And we maybe haven't even noticed it before. Like we maybe haven't even realized that it's there, but it's there and it's an age-old battle that's referenced in this passage of God's shining light to be seen and Satan blinding us from it. God shining, Satan blinding. We're going to see in this text today and I hope that it can come to bear on us because especially on Resurrection Sunday, we know that that is not an even fight, right? That is not an even match uh, between Satan and God. So I want to read this text for us. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to the church at Corinth that he had helped start, uh, to a church that we've seen the last few weeks that has started to, to question him, started to doubt the legitimacy of his message, the validity of the things that he was saying. He speaks to them or writes to them uh, these things. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And here's the language about the veil, the curtain. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. I want to spend most of our time this morning in verses 4 through 6. That's where there's the most clear language about the light that's shining and the person who's trying to blind us to it. Uh, but I don't want to just jump over verses 1 to 3 to get there. I want to take a few minutes to, to just make sure we understand what Paul was writing in verses 1 to 3 before we look at verses 4 through 6. And what you see happening in verses 1 through 3 is, is Paul expressing to this church his refusal as he's trying to minister to them, as he's even in other cities trying to minister to people. He's telling them in these verses about his refusal to modify God's word or to, to manipulate fellow human beings. He's saying, those are two things I will not do. Like, I will not modify God's word. I will not manipulate the people that God has created. And Paul, you see, in verse 1, uh, he faces temptations as a, an apostle, as a minister. He faces temptations to lose heart in his ministry, uh, to become discouraged, to, to, to lose heart. He says that that is something, we'll see it even in next week's text. He's, he faces this temptation to lose heart. And there's a lot of different reasons he does. There's different things that are tempting him to lose heart, to be discouraged. One you see in this text 
is the unbelief of people who hear his message. When, when he just spills his heart, pours his heart out to people, speaks the truth to them, tells them about Jesus, and then nothing. People just continue on in their unbelief. They just continue on not seeing Jesus as valuable, not repenting of their sins. That is a temptation to Paul to lose heart. And he says in verse 3, he says that even when he brings this gospel to them, this good news about Jesus, he says to some people it's veiled. There's, there's a curtain over them. We saw this last Sunday, so I don't reiterate this a ton, but there's a curtain that keeps them from seeing the truth of it that keeps them from seeing it for what it really is. He says that it is veiled. And Paul knows this. He knows it from his experience. As he preaches, as he writes, not everybody believes. Many people, in fact, don't. There's, there's a lot who do, and he rejoices in that, but there's a lot who don't. And it, it tempts him, at least, to discouragement. And what Paul's opponents, there were some opponents of his in this city of Corinth where he's sending this letter to. There's some of his opponents who knew that about Paul, that even when he would preach his heart out, even when he would write this good news to people, they knew a bunch of people don't buy it. A bunch of people don't agree with you, Paul. They don't see it. And they had taken that as evidence that Paul should be doubted. Like that, that maybe Paul isn't getting this right. Maybe he kind of misheard some things from Jesus. Maybe he's not really who he says he is. Because it, if this was such great news, surely everybody would believe it. Like surely God would just change everybody's heart if this guy's a legitimate messenger. But Paul knows that doesn't happen and he knows it won't happen. He knows that to some this good news is veiled. And what Paul knew and what we know is that the fact that a light is not seen does not mean that it is not shining, right? The fact that a light is not seen by people doesn't mean that that light is not shining. Paul knew that the light is shining, that the truth is going out, but some people aren't seeing it. You think of, of a man who is blind, for example. When he turns his face toward the sun, the sun is shining, right? But it's not seen by him. And so the fact that a light is not seen does not mean that it is not shining. And that is true of the gospel and Paul knows it. He's saying the light is shining but it is not seen by people. And just I would note, there are few things more discouraging to a minister. I say that as a pastor. There's few things more discouraging to a person like Paul, to myself. Few things more discouraging than preaching the gospel. Seeking to, to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus. And just seeing it not responded to. Seeing there be no response from people. See a hardening of people's hearts. It is so tempting to discouragement. And can tempt the heart, even when we do evangelism, right? It can be so discouraging when I've sought to be clear and to show you how great Jesus is. And you just don't believe. That is so discouraging. What it tempts us to, it tempts us to either think that we need to modify the message or that we need to manipulate the people. Right? That we're tempted to think, maybe I just need to like say some of these things different. Like maybe I need to talk, not talk about hell. Maybe I need to not talk about repentance. Talk more about faith, less about repentance. Maybe I need to, to hold out like rewards of the gospel more than the confrontation of sin. Maybe I need to like cut off some of the edges that are hard for people to hear. Paul's saying, I will not, I refuse, he says, in verse 2, to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He's saying, I will not change it. 
in order to have it be seen by people. I won't try to make it more palatable. And he says, I will not try to manipulate people either. I'm not going to practice cunning with people. I'm not going to... There's things we can try to do when we're seeking to bring the gospel to people that are not appropriate for us to do. We can attempt to manipulate people by flattering them, like speaking very highly of them, trying to make them be impressed with themselves even while we're trying to, to offer them the hope of forgiveness. We can be tempted to shame them like if you carry a big enough stick and try to intimidate people towards faith, you can sometimes think that you're doing it. We can try to, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we can try to impress them with ourselves instead of with Jesus and, and just try to show off our knowledge of the Bible or how eloquent we are or things like that. We can try to manipulate people into faith rather than making an open proclamation, like Paul says, an open proclamation of the truth. We shine the light as God has given it to us. We don't try to, to change it. We don't try to manipulate people as we bring it to them. And Paul's saying, I refuse to do these things. I will not change the message and I will not manipulate the hearers of it. I will keep speaking the truth of Jesus and God will shine the light. God will open the eyes of those whose eyes he wants to open. So he resists these temptations. But he knows, even as he does that, there's some who are not going to believe. There's some who it's veiled to. There's some who will not uh, change, who will not see the light of how great Jesus is. And he says in verse 3 that his gospel, this good news of Jesus, is veiled. Here's the curtain language, that there's a curtain over it. As he seeks to speak it to people. There's something that blocks that light from getting into the hearts of people. That keeps it from being seen by people as it should be seen. And what we know, right, is that veils are not hung on their own. Veils don't hang themselves, right? Curtains aren't just magically hung in a house. There's no house that just comes with curtains. Mine came with them, but somebody put them there, right? That they're put there for a reason, they're put there by a person, they're put there on purpose because they're trying to keep something from being seen, right? And so what we see in verses 4 through 6 is we see uh, who places this veil over the heart, over the gospel and keeps uh, things from being seen. We see who places that veil there and we see what he's trying to keep out. We see what he's trying to keep from being seen, what he's trying to keep from getting into the hearts of God's people. And we're going to see in verses 4 through 6 that it's Satan who blinds people. It's God who shines, Satan who blinds, right? So let's look a little bit at what he says even in verses 4 through 6 about how Satan blinds, but God continues to shine. Paul says in verse 4 as he's talking about these people who do not see the truth. They don't see Jesus as they ought. He says in verse 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. When Paul says the God of this world, this is a clear reference to Satan. Now, this is not a reference to the actual God, the, the Lord of all, the creator. This is a reference to Satan himself. And he's saying that it is him who operates on the minds of unbelievers. It's him who puts this veil up, who covers the gospel, who covers the windows of their hearts to keep the light from coming into their heart so they could see Christ. This is not a statement, I would say as an aside, because some people have challenged me on this before with this very verse. 
This title, the God of this world, is not a statement of Satan's sovereignty, of his control over this world. Uh, This is more a statement about what functionally is true of him in the lives of unbelievers, that they live as if he's their God. They live as if he's the one who is in control, and many times they don't even realize it. They're living with him as their God. He functions in some ways as the God of this world. And Paul says that he blinds their minds. There's something very particular that he doesn't want them to see. There's a lot of things he doesn't mind if people see in Rev 1, but there's one thing that he does not want to be seen by human beings. And you see that in verses 4 and verse 6. And Paul phrases this slightly different ways. But in verse 4, he says what Satan tries to keep people from seeing and what he's trying to even today keep some of you from seeing is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God that's what Satan does not want you to see he doesn't want this light to come into your heart to help you see the glory of Christ and then in verse 6 Paul says a very similar thing but he uses slightly different language right he says that God he says this in a positive sense once Satan's work is done he says that God has shown in our hearts he talks about light again to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he adds a few more words on there, doesn't he? There's some common words in both those statements, this light that needs to get into our hearts. He says this light uh, is about, the, it's about glory. That word is used in both those statements. And Christ is used in both those statements, isn't it? Verses 4 and 6. Light, glory, Christ. And so what Paul is saying, this light that needs to get into a person's heart, but that Satan is trying to keep out, is a light that shows us the greatness of God, but in a very particular way that shows us the greatness of God in the person of Jesus. Not just in some abstract way, some idea, but God wants us to see his greatness through a person, through a human being, Jesus Christ, his very son. And Satan does not want us to see that. He is putting blackout curtains over the windows of our heart, right? He, he does not want that light to get into our hearts to see God's greatness and to see it in the person of Jesus. Satan does not mind if you are impressed with all sorts of other things. Like, he actually, it's to his advantage. If you're impressed with all sorts of other things, you see glory in all sorts of other people, all sorts of other things. If you see glory in those things, Satan is fine with that. He's cool with that. It makes his job easier. He, he is fine if the light of the glory of other stuff comes into the window of your heart. The light of the glory of art or of food or of literature or of beaches, science, athletics. He's even fine. Uh, this is obvious, but he's fine if the light, so to speak, of other religions comes into your mind and heart. He's fine if the light even, and hear me on this, he's fine even if you are impressed with the light of a preacher. So long as you are not impressed with the light of Christ. If he can keep you from being impressed with Jesus, his job is done. That is what he refuses to, get, to let get into your life. That is what he will seek to prevent from happening. He doesn't even care if you're impressed with him. 
It makes his job easier if you're not openly impressed with him. So long as you're just impressed with others and forget that he's there, forget that he's hung those blinds uh, in your eyes, the eyes of your spiritual heart. He just doesn't want you to be impressed with Christ. And he actively tries to keep it that way. Like he, Paul talks about this as if it's an active thing that's going on, that he keeps them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ. He will do everything. He will try to manipulate things in your mind and in your heart and your life to keep you from seeing how great Jesus is. We love in post-enlightenment times in modern Western world, we love thinking that we're just these like neutral, objective thinkers. Like I think for myself, I get all the facts. Like I know I can get all the information. I can make decisions without anybody really affecting me, without anybody steering me in certain directions. I can be neutral. I can be objective. This text blows that idea up. It says your mind and your heart, whether you realize it or not, is either being operated on by Satan or is being operated on by God. Satan either has those blinds up in your mind to keep you from seeing how great Jesus is, or God has torn them down and now you do see how great Jesus is. You are not neutral. You are not just purely objective, able to make decisions. Satan operates on the minds of unbelievers. He actively seeks to keep us from seeing how great Jesus is. And the reason that he has to do that, the reason Satan has to try so hard to keep those blinds, that veil, over the mind of our heart, over the eyes of our heart, over the windows of our heart, is because that light is shining. That light is shining bright. Like he has to try hard to put up some curtains to keep that light out. That light is shining. The reason curtains are there is because light is there. Like the light of the glory of Jesus is shining and Satan does not want you to see it. And Paul talks about this in verse 6. He, he, talks, he even goes back as he's talking about this, using this metaphor of light. He goes back to the very beginning of time, to creation itself, right? And he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he's referring back to the beginning of time and he's reminding us even in saying that that God's light has always been shining. The glory of how great God is has always been shining towards human beings. God, in, uh, th he's referencing day one of creation. If you read Genesis chapter one, he's quoting it here. Uh, he, he's referencing that very beginning of time. If you go back and read Genesis 1, you see that even before God said, let there be light, Moses recorded for us that darkness was over the face of the deep. But I don't know exactly what that looked like. There was no human beings yet to see it. But there was darkness over the face of the deep. And then God spoke into that situation and said, let there be light. And there was. God showed his glory first in the creation of light, the shining of light. And then God, for five more days, continued to create, continued to speak things into existence. And even in everything that he created on this earth and beyond, he was showing his greatness. He was showing his creativity. He was showing his power through creating all these things. And then he created human beings who could see it. Right? who could revel in it, who could see and appreciate how great he was, to see his glory. But who was there to help mess that up? The God of this world, right? 
who came up to Eve, came up to Adam, and he tempted them to doubt God's goodness, to question God's glory, to question his wisdom, to reject his wisdom, to defy his commands, and to eat the fruit that God had told them to not. And we have followed in their footsteps. Throughout time, Satan has continued, even as God sought to show us his greatness, to show us his glory, we as human beings continue to reject it, continue to be repulsed by it, continue to walk away from it and hide ourselves from it. But thankfully, God didn't just stop at shining his glory in the light of creation. The way he has shown his light the clearest and brightest was not in creation, but it was in Christ. It was in the sending of his son into our world. That's when his glory started to be seen most clearly, most powerfully, most supremely. Because when he sent God the son into this world to become a human being, there started to be dimensions of God's greatness that we hadn't really fully appreciated before, that we hadn't fully really seen before. Prior to Jesus coming, we could have known of God's power. We could have seen the glory of his power. But when Jesus came into the world, we saw the glory of God's humility, right? Prior to the incarnation of Jesus, we could have seen the glory of God in his authority, his rule. But when Christ came into the world as a human being, we saw his glory in service, like in laying his life down. We, saw, we had seen and could know God's glory in his commanding people, commanding things to happen. But in the person of Jesus, we saw his glory in obeying and submitting, right? We had seen God's glory in God making promises. But when Christ became a human being, we saw God's glory as God the Son entrusting promises believing promises. There were things we started to see about God uh, that we had not seen, that we could not know fully about God prior to Jesus becoming a human being, God the Son entering our world. But, Jesus, but Satan was there again, wasn't he? Just as he got the curtains up in Adam and Eve's heart, he got them up in the hearts of the people in Jesus' day as well. It was not long, right, from Palm Sunday where everybody was worshiping Jesus almost at least or posturing as if they were saying, Hosanna, and this is the Messiah. To, on, that happened on Sunday and on Friday some of them were yelling to crucify him. Like saying, put him to death. Like who is the one who was shining this light, who'd been healing people, who'd been teaching with God's authority, who'd been opening God's word to, and changing people's lives was now nailed to a cross and put to death and laid in the tomb that Friday. And that Friday, I have meditated on this a lot the last few days, was dark, dark. Like unspeakably dark. Because it felt, and that day, I am sure for people that were there, it felt like Satan had won. Right? If there was this cosmic battle between God shining and Satan blinding, trying to keep people from seeing it, it felt like Satan had won. Because God gave this culmination of his light shining in the person of Jesus, and it felt like Satan not just had blocked the light from being seen, as if he was neutral, but that he had snuffed it out. And that was a darkness that was much deeper than Genesis 1-2. Like where there was a darkness over the face of the deep, that in creation I would understand as just an absence of light. What was happening on Good Friday felt like a presence of darkness. Like a power of darkness. Like it felt like it had overcome the light. The skies even turned dark for three hours in the middle of the day in Jerusalem that day. 
as Christ died upon the cross. But the light of Christ was about to shine brighter than it ever had before. That light may have felt like it was snuffed out as he was laid in the tomb. But on Sunday morning, things changed. And they changed because Jesus had not died for his own sins. Jesus had not suffered at the hands of God. He had not suffered just at the hands of Satan as if he deserved death, as if he deserved suffering. Jesus had died for our sins. Jesus had borne the penalty and the punishment for our sins, not his own. And so when he was laid in that tomb, having received the full judgment that should have come upon us, when he was laid in that tomb, God the Father could look at him now, having laid all the punishment upon him. God could look at him with a smile again on his face, knowing that he had been fully obedient even to the point of death. And God the Father could rightfully reward him and raise him back up to life, never to die again. And when he was raised in that dark tomb, I would have loved to be in there. Maybe God has a recording of it. He can show us in the new earth. I don't know. But in that dark tomb outside Jerusalem, on that first day of the week, God wasn't just starting a new week. He was starting a new creation. He was starting a new world. And when he lit that fire again in Jesus, it was a light that will not and cannot ever go out. It was the start of a new creation, something we have never seen, never known as human beings. Like a resurrected human being who rules over all. And who on top of that is merciful to us. Who is forgiving toward us. Who are the reason for his death. That is a glory like you cannot know anywhere else. That you cannot see anywhere else. And Satan does not want you to see it. He, doesn't, he wants you to see Jesus as some myth, to see him as some just fable, some person who, if he existed, his disciples probably made up this story. But this story is true. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after he was raised from the dead. And he, like Marco said earlier, he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father. And he invites you to come to him. He, he wants to tear those curtains down in your heart that keep you from seeing how great he is. And my prayer today is that he will. Like that you would not see Jesus as just some myth or some fable, but that you would see him as your savior. That you would see him as the one who died on the cross for your sins. Not just for the sins of abstract humanity, but for your sins. Who was crushed for you. And who was raised for you now never to die again and says, come to me, turn from your sins and I can share my life with you. This light is something that is to be enjoyed by us. Paul says that it has shown in our hearts, right? Paul, the guy who wrote this, had seen the resurrected Jesus. Like some of you know that story, I don't have time to get into it. He had been killing Christians. Paul, the guy who wrote this, and the resurrected Jesus who'd already ascended into heaven stooped down to come back to earth momentarily and on the road to Damascus stopped Paul in his tracks and even blinded him, ironically, given this text, blinded him with how great he was 
And to the very one who was persecuting him, killing his people, he extended mercy and invited him to become one of his brothers, one of his sons, one of his followers, and Paul did. And if God has shone into the light, uh, his light into the heart of Paul, he can surely shine it into yours. And my prayer today is that he would. This happened to me. This happened to dozens and dozens and dozens of people in this room who used to have those curtains up. And the Holy Spirit is coming and ripped those things down. And that light may be blinding at first, but it is glorious as your eyes get used to it. That the Son of God entered into our world and died for us and was raised for us and invites us to be with him forever. The most common miracle that Jesus performed, as best as I can tell, was the, while he was on this earth was the healing of the blind, the giving sight to the blind. There's several encounters where, that we have recorded in the Gospels. One I wanted to briefly read for you before we sing is from Luke 18. There's this man who had come to Jesus. He actually had to be brought to Jesus by others, but who could not see. And as if he needed to know, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This happened over and over and over again. Jesus giving sight to the blind. I noted in the Gospels as I read them this week, like several times he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they'd always ask him, give me my sight. Like help me see. And Jesus had the power to do it. And he was kind enough to give them their physical sight back. And he come into our heart. You cannot give yourself spiritual sight any more than that man could give himself physical sight. But you don't have the ability to tear down those curtains yourself. They've been there a long time. They've been put up by powerful people. And you've, whether you realize it or not, you've been glad that they've been there. But the Holy Spirit can tear them down. He can give you sight. He can help you see Jesus as he is to be seen. All you have to do is ask. This man said, let me recover my sight. God had given this longing to see again. He asked for it. God granted it to him. If God is giving you a longing to see Jesus as he is, ask him for it. Ask him to see Jesus as he ought. Pray for that and God will open your eyes to see him. Then talk with us who he's done that to. We would love to, to pray with you, talk with you, explain more about how great this Jesus is and what he asks of you, what he invites you into. But I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing another song here in just a moment before we're dismissed today. Um, but I want us who have already seen this light, who've had those curtains torn down in our hearts long ago, to do what this man who was given sight did, to, to follow God, to glorify God. Thank him for giving us sight. So let's pray together, then we'll sing. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we are... Though we are powerless to take that veil down, that you are not. That you who raised your son from the dead that Sunday morning, that you have the power and that you have the willingness to tear those curtains down in the, eyes, in the hearts of, of us, of the unbelievers that we are or that we were. God, I pray that you would do that this morning. 
I pray that you've even already done that, that you have helped us see the glory of Christ, that you've given us the light of the knowledge of your glory and the face of Jesus Christ. So even as we sing to you this morning, we pray that you be brought glory, that we would be brought joy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.